morning, everyone. I'm going to say this real quick. There's a lot of great beards in here today. A lot of great beards. I can see five right now. Our beard game is tight here at Calvary Chapel. You guys familiar with Mike Tyson? Hey, so I talk about beards and I talk about Mike Tyson right off the bat. You ever play Mike Tyson's Punch-Out? Maybe that's my generation. Remember you couldn't, for those of you who can remember, if you started to punch Mike Tyson in the first round of the, the video game, he hits you once, you're down. You're down. And you couldn't really go after him. And this is kind of what going through the first three chapters of Romans is like. It's like fighting Mike Tyson. Paul's like Mike Tyson, and he's saying, boom, boom, he's throwing the punches. So it was great when Joe said he was in the hospital and said, can somebody take this section of scripture? And I'm, you know, I'm, oh, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And uh, then I read it, and I was like, oh, this is tough. There's going to be people mad at me this week. So I tried to get some of my jokes out of the way early because there's not too many jokes in this section of scripture. And I believe I saw Tommy Yashiro raising his hand to be a dancing donkey. So, Tom, that'll be great. <laughs> Let's go to the scriptures before I say anything else. Romans 2, 17 through uh, chapter 3, verse 8. Romans 2, 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. In chapter 3, what advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. In the King James, it says, God forbid. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God 
has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So Lord, we thank you for your word today. It's truth and it's, it's light. And Lord, we just look to you, the Lord of the word, to understand the word of the Lord. Without you, Lord, we just don't have understanding. Lord, I pray that you would just open our spiritual eyes this morning, Lord, to your truths. And that this word would find good soil in our hearts, produce much fruit. So I thank you for your word, Lord. Even in these sections, Lord, that we really need to hear that are hard-hitting, Lord, and maybe make us feel a little uncomfortable. But I thank you, Lord, for repentance, that we're able to repent, Lord. And if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Lord, we just pray that your word this morning would do its job. We know it is, Lord. You are a faithful God. And in your name we pray. Amen. The gospel as we know, means good news, means good news. Romans 1.1, Paul says, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Paul starts right off the bat, boom, in Romans, talking about the gospel. Paul's going to share this good news as we go through Romans. Uh, last Saturday night, uh, Josh Ingalls taught at Chapel Hill, and he said, uh, Romans, and it's something maybe many of us know, but uh, some don't, Romans was... Am I not? Oh, okay. I got to get closer. One second. Oh, I think that's much better. Okay, I got the thumbs up. Right during a very serious point. That's everyone's on the edge of their seats now. That was planned. So Paul's going to share this good news. You know, when, when he wrote this letter, there wasn't chapter 1, there wasn't chapter 2 through chapter 12, 13. Uh, it was just one letter. So when they read it, the hard parts they went through, but then guess what? It finished with grace. So people were in the beginning like, oh, boy, that's, that's tough. I'm a sinner. And then it ended with grace. So it was about a 45-minute read. But see, we're dragging this on weeks and weeks. So I just want to make sure that everyone knows this ends with grace. He's going to share the good news of the gospel. He's going to share the pricelessness of the most powerful gospel that changed his life. Yet before Paul gets into this, he paints a very dark picture. Maybe if you were here last week after you left, maybe you were like, wow, I'm a sinner. I left last week thinking that. And I was angry at Josh for like three days. <laughs> and I told him that. And then he said, I guess... The word worked. So Paul's going to show the depravity of all mankind. And this is that men and women are lost. John Calvin said, only those who have learned well to be earnestly dissatisfied with themselves and to be confounded with shame at their wretchedness truly understand the Christian gospel. And I think that was Paul is getting at. He left chapter one was shown that immoral people are sinners. After chapter one, some of us were feeling pretty good. We're like, yeah, those guys are sinners. You know, they, they suppressed the truth. They were not thankful. God gave them over to their depravity. And I think many times, Christians, we, uh, we sit on chapter one. You know, we're like, well, yeah, that's bad. But then guess what? Paul deals with you in chapters two and three because he starts chapter two with showing how the moral people are also sinners. God's standards apply to the moral man just as much as they do to the immoral man. 
The moralists broke the same standards that they were trying to hold the immoral people to as well. So those standards they were trying to hold these immoral people up to, guess what? They broke those standards, and Paul points that out. You know, when you point at someone, they say there's four fingers pointing back, but I did a little, uh, little experiment, and I did it, and there's actually only three. Your thumb's pointing up, unless you're pointing like that. I guess that depends where you're from. But anyway... Matthew 7, 5 is Jesus talking, and he says, hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's powerful words from Jesus. It's like that story from Jesus when he spoke about the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. I'll read it in Luke 18, 9 through 14. It says to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. So he was talking to that very type of people that were pointing the finger. And he said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's why the Bible says so many times God sets himself against the proud, but exalts the humble. See, our moral superiority will not get us to heaven. Our moral superiority will not get us to heaven. In verse 6 of chapter 2, God's going to render to each one according to their own deeds, as we learned last week. And then he moves on to the religious man. And this passage in Luke also brings out that point where I just read about the Pharisee. It's dealing with also a religious man. See, there's no partiality with God, as it says in chapter 2, verse 11. There's no partiality with God. God looks at the facts. There's no fake news with God. You know, reputation won't get you to heaven. I always like to talk about that show, The Chosen. You know, like in the first episode, there's a Pharisee walking down the street, and he thinks he's a pretty, pretty cool guy, and everyone's kind of backing down, and they're, they're bowing in, in reverence, and he's thinking he's pretty good. But guess what? That reputation that he has will not get him to heaven. God's going to judge according to the facts of the matter. He's all about the facts and he's speaking to the Jew here, yet today he could be speaking to the average churchgoer. I know he was speaking to me the other day when I was going through this. And that's one thing pastors do. Maybe you've heard this before. We go through the, the section of scripture and we do our repenting first. And then we lay it on you guys. <laughs> is that poetic justice is what they call it? So it is to those who have the law. And in verse 13, he says of chapter 2, it's not just the hearers. It's also those who have the word, and they don't do what it says. And Paul's now continuing to make his point. He's trying to get to this, for all have sinned destination. That's his, not his end game. The end game's the gospel. It's salvation. But he's trying to get to that point to prove that all are sinners. The all have sinned, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's where he's trying to get to. So right at first, Paul speaks to the Jews. He speaks to the Hebrews. In verse 17 of chapter 2, he says, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident 
that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Oh, I went too far. He's speaking to the religious man, the very proud churchgoer. See, we have the law. The word is right here in front of us. We have it either in paper, we have it on our phone maybe. We can get any dialect. Have you read the dialect? Was it from the Bahamas? Or is it from Jamaica? It's, it's quite something. Um, but anyway, I digress. Let me get back to the scriptures here. We have it in front of us. A lot of people have it. Uh, I even have some, fr- uh, some friends from uh, uh, Bill and Norma Jean um, Jansowitz. They go up to Canada to the Niscopi Indians, and they, they've translated the Bible in their language. And um, it's quite something. So, so many people, we have the word. You know, this says they rested on the law. They rested on the law, and they made their boast in God. You know, the Jewish people in Paul's day, they were very proud that they were given God's word. They thought they were the best. They're like, we were given God's word. We're God's chosen people. And they felt this was insurance of their salvation. You know, this will bring salvation. Yes, God's word will, will bring salvation. But as we learn, it will also bring condemnation. You know, just having the word will not save us. Just like reputation will not save us. Having the scriptures will not save you. They most definitely should be thankful that they had the word. That's something to be thankful for. They were guides, it says. They were lights. They were instructors. They were teachers. He said, aren't you a guide? Aren't you a light in the darkness? Instructor, a teacher? You know, but this was just a form of knowledge, as it says. It says, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You know, Paul's going to show how just having the law will not justify anybody. Just having the scriptures will not save you. And, And then he says in the next couple verses what it comes down to. He says in 21 through 24, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. See, Paul is saying that they had the law, but do they keep it? He's like, are you guys keeping the law? You have it. You know, we have the Bible, but do we do what it says? We have, you know, we see how others break the rules, but we, do we break them ourselves? You know, it's funny. I made the example of how I'll get after my kids about something. I'm like, I can't believe you just did that. And then a couple minutes later, I'm doing it. And my excuse is, hey, I'm the dad. I can do that. I did that this morning to Isaiah. I was like, I'm the dad. I can do that. He's not buying it. He's going back to Matthew 7, 5, where it starts, hypocrite. (laughs) I'm not teaching him that word yet. But God sees our actions and our attitudes. Our actions are obvious. They're right out there for everyone to see. But God knows everything. You know, when we do the right thing with the wrong attitude, he knows. I was sharing last night at Saturday night. There was a few weeks ago, I I didn't want to go to Saturday night church and teach. There was something going on. I was like, I just don't feel like doing it. But I went and did it anyway. So my actions were obvious. I did it. But my heart wasn't in the right place. And before I started teaching, the Lord started convicting me about that. There are many times we're doing things and we're like, yeah, whatever. We're just doing this because it's good. When we do the right thing with the wrong attitude, 
God knows. God knows. And we'll be judged by both. We'll be judged by both. I'm not saying stopping what you're doing if you're volunteering. Just saying get your, get your heart right and then continue to volunteer. You know, because when we fail, we give a poor reflection of, of God. You know, King David, when he committed adultery and murder, uh, had this said to him by Nathan the prophet. I don't know if you remember in 2 Samuel 11, if you want to go back and read it. Uh, just going through First and Second Samuel is very interesting reading. But David was up on his roof, and it said at the time when kings go to war. He was supposed to be at war, but he was up on his roof surveying his, his layout, saying, hey, this is the best. And then he saw a lady on the roof bathing. Why she was bathing on the roof, I have no idea. No idea. But anyway, it brings the story together. David then brings this woman in, commits adultery. He then kills her husband. And then what happens is he keeps going, living his life. And then Nathan the prophet, prophet shows up. And he says, David, hey, there's a story about this guy that's got a little lamb, and they loved the lamb. And they brought the lamb in, and he was the pet, and he was a nice pet. And uh, then there was a, a rich guy with a, with a ton of, of, of lambs. But he went and took the poor guy's little lamb. And David was furious. He was furious. He said, that guy should be killed. And Nathan said, you are the man. He said, that's you. And then in 2 Samuel 12, 13 through 14, it says, So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord, is also, the Lord also has put your, away your sin. You shall not die. However, because this deed, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. That's convicting to me. At many times, I've given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. See, we tell people not to look at us, but look at Jesus. We're like, no, don't look to me, look to Jesus. And that is correct. That's right. Look at, look at Jesus. But our lives should be reflecting Jesus. You heard the story about the gold, how it's refined? They take the gold and they put some heat on it, and the, the, the gunk comes up to the top, and they skim it, and then they heat it up again, and they do that seven times until they can see their reflection. See, God puts us through many things, take the junk off. And then he puts the heat on again in our lives, takes the junk off, and then he can see his reflection in us. But we also see that ceremonies don't matter. Verses 25 through 29. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if there's too many of circumcised and uncircumcised in this one section, <laughs> drive me nuts. And of course, I'm going to make the joke. If anybody wants to know what circumcision is, you can talk to Tony Real or, or, or Tom Miyashiro, and they will tell you what it is after. <laughs> I know that joke's been made before, but it's still funny. So, and will not, 27, and will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So circumcision, you know, Paul took 
He took the Bible out of the religious people's hands. So they had the law. But now he's going to show them, guess what? Even your ceremonies don't matter. They said they had rituals. They had rituals. They were the descendants of Abraham, what they're going to say later. Hey, we're related to Abraham. He was the best. We're good to go. And Paul's saying, you can't trust in those things. You know, maybe we think uh, our families are Christians, so we're good. Well, we went to church when we were little, so, so we're good. You know, we've been baptized. I was baptized when I was little. I don't really know what it was, but I, I'm good. You know, religious ceremonies can't save us. Those things are great, but it needs to match up with the inside. God requires righteousness. The moral or religious man might get a praise from others. You know, some have said to me, they're like, oh, Pastor Aaron, you're a very spiritual person. Now, the people that know me, they don't, don't say that to me. They're like, you're a bum. <laughs> you know, they'll say, Bill Pratt said amen. <laughs> might need to end the lesson early. <laughs> but people come up, they're like, hey, you know, maybe you're somebody that serves or you teach. And they're like, oh, you serve and teach. You're, you're pretty spiritual, you, you know, or your parents are great Christians. Sorry, mom and dad. My parents are good Christian people. But, you know, people come up and they equate that to, to my Christianity. And these things will not save me. They're good things, but they won't save me. It's how I measure up before God. It's how I measure up before God. See, you'll know them by their fruits. Matthew 7, 17 through 20 says, Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by the fruits, by their fruits, you will know them. See, the immoral, they can't stand. The immoral people can't stand. They rejected the, the truth. They have a depraved mind. They were not thankful. The moral man won't be saved by being good. doesn't matter what you do. We all probably know somebody that says, he's a good guy. I don't care how good you are. You're not that good. No one is good but the Lord. The religious man won't be saved by just having the word or ceremonies. Then in chapter 3, he continues with the religious person, just in case there was any doubt. So Paul's laying it down pretty heavy here. But just in case there's any doubt, he continues in chapter 3. And now he's speaking to the skeptic. He's speaking to the skeptic. I remember years ago, I was first saved, and uh, me and my wife were married in our first apartment, and I knew this guy down the hall, and I was talking with him one day, and he was talking about this, um, this movie he saw because he was trying to disprove God to me. And I was a fairly new Christian, so I was sitting there talking with him, and he said, I saw this movie, and it was uh, God showed up to this guy, and the guy asked God a question, can, I, can you make a rock that you can't move? And then God disappeared, poof, and God was gone. So I looked at him, and I said, that was the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> but he felt like he proved his point to me. He proved nothing. I, he proved nothing. But um, I still, to this day, have no answer to that. That's just, I, I don't know. I, I was like, hey, can you make me a sandwich that I can't finish? Because I'm starving here. <laughs> so I apologize for that. I had to bring food up one time. But Paul says here in verse 1 and 2, he's talking to the religious skeptic in chapter 3. What advantage then has the Jew or what is the prophet of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them 
were committed the oracles of God. So what advantage did they have? We already know that the ceremonies and having Abraham as a descendant, that's not going to save them. But they have a big advantage. He says much in every way. You guys have a big advantage. You have the oracles of God. You have the, the word of God, a written revelation of God before the time of Jesus. Much of it spoke about Jesus. As Joe likes to say, you can see Jesus on every page of the Bible. But I always like to go back to Isaiah 53, and it's Jesus from start to finish in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus was born. You know, this was a great treasure given to the Jewish people. See, they had uh, the advantage of God's word. They had the advantage of the oracles of God. And this was amongst other things, as Paul will talk about later in Romans, as we go through Romans, in chapter 9, verses 4 through 5, it says, Who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises? Of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who was over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. All that stuff these guys were blessed with, the Hebrews. And Jesus was coming out of them. Still with this in mind, some did not believe. So what about this unbelief? Paul's going to deal with that. He says in verses 3 and 4, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Or as it says in the King James, God forbid. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. So Paul continues his discussion. This question is, what if some did not believe? What if there were those that didn't believe? They were those that decided that the grace of God was not for them. Maybe we all know somebody like that. Maybe we all know somebody's like, no, that's not for me. You do your own thing. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm all right. I'm making enough money here. I live in the United States. You know, we're doing well. The grace of God, it's not for me. And in Paul's day, many Jewish people rejected the gospel. They rejected the gospel. And, but will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect, like he wrote here. Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? And is God's work futile because they don't believe? That's what he's saying. Is there no point to God's work because you guys don't believe? You know, we might think there's something wrong with us when we're sharing the gospel with somebody or somebody's asking us about what we believe and we're sharing about the grace of God, you know, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's what Jesus did for us. Uh, we might think there's something wrong with the message. We're like, wait a second, maybe there's, there is something wrong with that. Maybe there's some seed of doubt in our heads. You know, Satan is like a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. He's going to try to get you. He's going to try to get you not to believe. Because unbelief is the worst sin. It's the sin against the cure. And if he can pe keep people in unbelief, he's got them. And he's going to attack those people sharing it. So maybe you think there's something wrong with you or, or there's something wrong with the message. But man's unbelief does not ruin God's plan. God's plan is going to steamroll right through, regardless of if man believe or not. I'd rather not be underneath that steamroller, if you know what I'm saying. Our belief in Jesus is not dependent on somebody else. We'll go on believing even if we see doubters. So even if we share this message, we need to continue on believing. You know, we've seen it work in our lives. We've seen the wonderful things God has done in many of our lives. We've seen uh, healings. We've seen deliverance. We've seen so many things that God has done 
So why let some little, I don't believe because I'm good, a little statement get us? Although it does, and it gets in there. Was it James 4, 7? Submit to God, rebuke the devil, and he will flee. Very important in those situations. Submit to God, rebuke the devil. Satan, get out of here. He'll flee. So we've, we've seen it work in our lives. But Paul says, let God be true. Paul says, let God be true, but every man a liar. God's testimony is above every single man or woman. God doesn't lie. God is true, and we are liars. I like when people say, ah, I don't lie. I said, well, you just did. <laughs> you just did. It's like when you're, even if you're at somebody's house, and they're like, oh, how's the food? You're like, delicious. Not delicious. Not delicious. You lied. You know? But God will always be right in what he does. Everything that God, God is righteous. He does all things right. When God and man differ, man is always wrong. I love it when people try to, and they do it on the Facebook. I'm not on the Facebook anymore, but people will take God's scriptures and say, well, this is what it says here. It's, you're not right about that. When it's, it's like it says something for all have sinned. No, 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 not all have sinned. That's ridiculous. No. When you differ with God, you're wrong. Man is always wrong. His ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. As it says in Isaiah 55, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, he's God and we are not. It's important to remember for ourselves, you know, that he is God, we are not. It doesn't matter how we feel. I, I was uh, sharing the story last night. I was at Pastor Joe's house. I used to deliver his mail. And he got a book like every day. I'm like, who gets this many books? That might be a federal offense. Don't tell anybody I just said what Joe got on his back. But he did. He guys got a lot of books. I was like, somebody's got to get this guy a Kindle. But I, I was going up there one day, and there was two guys walking up there, you know, where they were dressed up, and they had their books. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't think they know whose house they're going up to. I was like, I was like guys, get out of here. Go. So they went up and they start talking with Joe. And Joe is like telling them what it says in their books and what page to get that information in their libraries. Uh, this is a true story. That's what happened. But this one kid says, well, I have a feeling, you know, a warm sensation. And Joe said, well, I have a, a warm sensation that I should go down the street and, and shoot somebody, but I'm not going to do it. Uh, that wasn't the only thing he said. And he said it more eloquently than that. But... <laughs> But the kid left, and he was, you know, I, those kids were questioning their, their doctrine, I think, when they left. So hopefully it found some good seed in their hearts and, and that they get saved. But it doesn't matter how we feel. We can't trust our hearts like that guy said. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? See, we can believe God even more than we can believe ourselves. And there's no excuse Verse 5 says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. There are those who have great questions to try to trick God, like my buddy there with the rock. You know, Paul's saying we can just look at ourselves. You know, our unrighteousness will show God's righteousness. So is God unjust who inflicts wrath? He's saying, okay, is God unjust that inflicts wrath? You know, he's speaking as a man. Paul's like, I'm a fallen man. This is who I'm speaking like. And even when God brings good out of our sin, we are still guilty. So even when our unrighteousness shows God's righteousness, 
we're sinners, we're still guilty. But God can make good out of our huge mistakes. Not that I know about that. <laughs> you know, not that any of you know about that, you know. <laughs> Look at that was that was a little condemning, I apologize. But you do, I'm just saying. We've made huge mistakes, and God has gotten us out of huge mistakes, and we're still guilty. That's no credit to us. And Paul's saying, hey, here, he's going to cement this point now in verses 6 through 8. He said, there's no excuse, but certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say their condemnation is just. See, Paul puts an end to this argument. God is a righteous judge and will judge the world, and Paul makes this very clear. Everyone will face the judgment seat of God. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It says in Hebrews 9:27, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. There were some that were saying that Paul said, uh, we can do all the evil we want to do. We can do whatever we want, and God will make good out of it. That's what you're saying, Paul? So you're saying our unrighteousness will show God's righteousness? Hey, let's go be unrighteous. Let's do whatever we want to do. And Paul was being misunderstood. So that's nice, because Paul was misunderstood. Nine out of ten times I'm misunderstood. So that's nice that Paul was in this group with me. Um, I didn't just compare myself to the Apostle Paul. That's not... That's how it came out. I'm being misunderstood. Wait a second. But see, these guys, they were perverting the message of justification through faith. They were perverting the message. The thief on the cross is a great example of that message. You know, this man died, was dying on the cross, and when, you, when he died, I heard Alistair Begg say this. I thought it was really neat. He said, when, when that guy gets to heaven, you know, he probably wasn't questioned about all the, the things that Christians love to debate, because we love to debate, don't we? You know, he didn't get up there and somebody said, well, you know about predestination, right? And he's probably, no, no, I don't. Well, you know, once saved, always saved and lose your salvation. You know that, correct? No, nope. Well, you know about, you know, dispensation and, and the times and all this stuff. Nope, nope. But he might say, hey, I saw the Lord. And then this is what I said to him. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. This is the thief talking to his other thief on the cross. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So we aren't saved by what we do or what we don't do. We're saved by a relationship of faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter how we live. Absolutely. Yes. Our unrighteousness does make God look righteous, but we don't want to pervert this message. Titus 3.5 says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. See, salvation is a work of Jesus Christ. See, Paul taught a free gospel of grace that could be twisted. We still see it twisted today. But what does Paul say to those people that twist it? It's in the last sentence of verse 8. It says their condemnation is just. He says their condemnation is just. Twisting the offer of free salvation and using it as an excuse to sin will bring condemnation. It will bring condemnation. That's shaky ground. Occasionally, this, it's a ground that I've stepped on before, just being honest with you. 
This could be the high point of man's depravity. This could definitely be the zenith, the high point of man's depravity is twisting the gospel message. Now, Paul's taken away any excuse we, have, we may have about our sin. He's taken away all the excuses. He's saying the immoral man, the moral man, the religious man, the skeptical religious man who is looking for a loophole, none have an excuse. Absolutely none. So this is another week of seeing our failures. You're welcome. <laughs> you know, Paul was speaking to the religious people and the skeptics, yet he's speaking to everybody. He's speaking to absolutely everybody. So is there any encouragement here? That's what I want to find. Is there any encouragement? I know there is uh, communion today. I'm on my last point, so I don't know if we want to start handing that out or no. I guess not. <laughs> I don't even see the stuff. Oh, it's there. So maybe people are just coming up to get it. Okay, I'm just going to continue with my lesson, and then when Cheryl comes running out waving her hands, I'll say it's communion time. Let's look at some encouragement first. Let's go back to verse 16 of chapter 2. It says, In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Paul calls it my gospel. He didn't make it up. It's not something he invented. You know, this shows that it was inside of him. He wasn't ashamed. What did he say in chapter 1? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. He was not ashamed. It's kind of how like a, a soldier would be. You know, when the soldier looks at his flag, he says, that's my country. You know that, that famous statue of the Marines where they're holding up the flag? They're like, this is my country. We are going to die for this flag. We are going to die for our country. They were willing to die for their country. And that's what Paul's saying. He's like, I, I would die for this gospel. This is my gospel. It's inside of me working. So can we say this with Paul? Can we say this very thing with him? Our gospel, we know the good news of Jesus Christ. We're all sinners. And we need to trust in Jesus for salvation. See, Jesus took all our sins on the cross, and he made us righteous. I call that the great exchange, the great swap. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21 says, Therefore, if anyone in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who have reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And this is the key point here, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the great switch. See, Jesus took all of our sin and gave us all his righteousness. He's, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He bore all our sins. And Paul is showing us here in these scriptures, and this is where I believe the encouragement is, is it's our great need for Jesus Christ. Our great need for Jesus doesn't matter if we're a moral, moral, religious, a skeptic. It doesn't matter. We all need Jesus. 
We're all sinners. So I know they're handing out the communion. Um, so I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But before I do that, I, I think I want to give an opportunity. Maybe there's somebody here this morning. Maybe you fall, we all fall underneath one of those sections, I guess. Maybe there's somebody here this morning. You haven't given your life to Jesus Christ. And you want to be reconciled to God. You want to become made righteous through what Jesus did for us on the cross. I want to give you an opportunity. So I'm going to just say, actually, because we're going to do communion, but after the service, please come up. I want to pray with you to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. We want to pray with you. But maybe you're a Christian and you've been a, a religious person. Maybe you're here just because you've been going to church every week since you were a kid. And now you're realizing, hey, that's not going to save me. I also want to give you an opportunity to come up. We want to pray with you to receive Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior, you know, to, to get away from that religiousness and have that personal relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're a skeptic and realizing, hey, my skepticism is not working out for me. Again, come on up. We want to pray with you. So we're just going to wait a minute. Does the band want to come back up to play another song? Vest was a bad idea. It's hot up here. <laughs> oh, hey. Yeah, that's true. Got a bunch of jokers in this place, I'll tell you. So we got everything all dispersed and we're... 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 23, it says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I got nothing. So take, eat, in remembrance of the Lord. I always like to say, I remember when I was a kid going to church, people would do this, and then after they would wait a minute, and they would just reflect, because it's doing this in remembrance of Jesus. We're remembering the great things that God has done for us, remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross. Yeah. Then he says in verse 25, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this, this do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. So as Joe likes to say, to Jesus, I got one. it says for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim proclaim the lord's death till he comes amen so let's pray and then sing another song here lord jesus we thank you for your word
Lord, we confess we're sinners for all have sinned. And Lord, we know the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift from you is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we thank you for this gift of Jesus. And as we just did communion in remembrance of what Jesus did for us, Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your saving grace. We thank you, Lord, that even through these parts of scriptures that are hard-hitting, Lord, we can find encouragement and we can see you and how you work in our lives through these portions of scripture. And I just thank you for everyone here today, Lord Jesus. And Lord, I just pray if there's someone that gave their life to Jesus today that they would come up so we could pray with them. And we thank you, Lord, for your saving grace. And in your name we pray. Amen. The, uh, the projectors are down, so this last song we're not going to have words on the screen for. It's called Christ is Risen. If you care to look it up on your phone so you can sing along. It's called Christ is Risen. It's sung by Hunter Thompson. The first verse just comes from uh, Amazing Grace. And then the subsequent verses are about our state as, as prodigals, as we could be compared to the prodigal son and how we're brought back. And the last verse is about looking upon Jesus, our Savior. So it's called Christ is Risen. Amazing grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see, hallelujah. Christ is risen from the grave, hallelujah. Christ is risen from the grave. prodigal the prodigal is welcomed home the sinner now a saint for the god who died came back to life now everything has changed hallelujah christ is risen from the grave hallelujah christ is risen from the grave oh death where is your sting Oh, death, where is your sting? Fear, where is your power? The mighty King of kings has disarmed you, delivered and redeemed. Eternal life is ours. Oh, praise His name forever. Hallelujah. Christ is risen.
day he calls me in to heaven's sweet embrace. I'll see your scars, your open arms, the beauty of your face. And through tears of joy, I'll lift my voice Amen.